Well, my, my fi- the good mainstream movie I've seen lately. And I was just saying how my mind always shuts down when someone asks me that question because it always seems like a blur. Yeah. Well, working as a film critic, that question comes a lot. Like, what's your favorite movie? People ask all the time. Right. And I realized after a certain point, they don't really want to know what your favorite movie is. They want to get a recommendation for a movie they maybe haven't seen. So I just... Ah. You're right. That, I mean, that's my theory of the movie. Yeah. I don't know about the artist question. That might be a different, different rationale, but... But for the movie, I always say, and I have for a long time, Videodrome by David Cronenberg, which is legitimately perhaps my favorite movie, although there's other contenders like Female Trouble by John Waters might be my favorite movie. But I always say Videodrome, and I've gotten some people really mad at me when they went and got <laughs> really? watched it, and they're like, you told me Videodrome, and that was, much, that was too much. And I'm just like, well, you asked. I mean, yeah. my favorite movie is, yeah. It's a f- I mean, I don't know. It's hard to think of someone who would be troubled. I guess those people want to see this. By that uh, I showed it once in, uh, to a college class, uh, and granted, they were like, it was for like, you know, like when you go to um, college and like you, you, uh, you, they, for your first year, they'll have some sort of like day camp, like two weeks before totally. the, to like break you into Team college. Building. Team building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I worked at one of those once and I had to show movies and I showed Videodrome and one girl came out crying and, and I remember saying, it's like, why did we have to watch this oh, such a scary movie? Like she was really upset and I'm just like, welcome to Bard, you know, like get used to it or don't, no, I mean, whatever. You actually got a galley. Interesting. You got these so early. Oh yeah. Yeah. The inside is the same, but the cover is different. Oh cool. What what is the cover? Slightly different. It's just a slightly different design than this. Ah, Okay. Um, They had to, for printing purposes, they had to alter some things, and so it's more like this on a white background, off-white background. Anyways. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you can't see on the radio. Yeah, exactly. No. So it's exactly the same. Exactly the same. It's the signal problem of the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) In a way. Um, but I think you're you're the first guest we've had that has been like promoting or you know has a book, actually like, promoting something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, good. Has yeah. Like, something concrete to uh, to talk about, which yeah. uh, I think we're, we're all we're excited. About. We've never had wow. a give a plug copy. Yeah. Uh, 
I guess I I wasn't ready for a plug. I yeah, mean, no, no, no. We, we do the plugs at the beginning. I have a I have a plan, as you'll you know. Oh, you have a plan. Well, uh, okay, good. Oh, nice. Norman Mailer, weird. Okay, yeah, all right, interesting. Again, David, like that's like not gonna translate. I like to that. Audio. Very useful. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that's more for Instagram. All right. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. Um, I'm gonna read it out loud. Grove slash Evergreen. Your yeah, book. so we'll begin. Right, with that. Yeah. yeah. Publisher, editor, Norman Mailer, men. Men. Okay, yeah. We yeah. can talk about men. Yeah. What of the old leftism? <laughs> yeah. Downward arrow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Village voice. Yeah. Criticism. Sure. Yeah. We can talk about that. Classic. Uh, and then some scrawls. Alex Jones. Yeah. Alex Jones, bigger than the Gutenberg Press. Today, mm-hmm. Mass Effect. What? Got some more scribbles. <laughs> we got to make those connections. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. That's a, Are you asking because I was on the Alex Jones show? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that was that, weird. That's a quote from, uh, you know, when Alex Jones is, you know, a podnes- podcast uh, catnip. Um, oh, really? Yeah. People, okay, uh, good. You know, he's he's highly dissected. Anyway, yeah. but, but we're going to start with the new book. Sure. Um, which is entitled... From the Third Eye, right? Yep, the Evergreen Review Film Reader. This is a book that is, uh, I think it can be pre-ordered right now, but it's going to be, in st- it may be in stores right now. It's like early March. March 6th, I think, is the official date. It's so. literally hot off the presses. Yeah, when, yeah, when, it when is. When people hear this. Yeah, what's that? When well, people, yes, yeah. it'll be brand new. So this is actually bizarrely, um, you know, you mentioned my work with the Village Voice and Light Industry and all those kind of things. This actually goes before any of those. Right. Like I was um, in the late, in the 90s, I was the director of the New York Underground Film Festival, which was a festival that ran for 15 years and stopped around, oh, I can't remember the exact time, but oh, six or seven. Um, So I ran it for 10 of those years, Mm -hmm. of those 15 years. Uh, And that, you know, while I was still doing that, uh, I worked at a dot-com during the first dot-com boom. Right. And then (laughs) that dot-com, it was called InSound. It was like an indie rock merch site it was like basically yeah anyways doesn't matter i don't think it's around anymore but you outlined some of this in the essay in the beginning yeah, the yeah yeah so so then i i one of the people who worked there i got laid off from that job and was kind of looking for things to do and i was living in the east village at the time and barney rossett uh and his wife astrid were still living in the east village at the time they were living in a loft that is uh you know right near astor place and I live just two blocks away. So my friend was like, oh, you know, I have a friend in the neighborhood. Maybe he could help you with this project you're doing. A friend, Lars Kreslins, who's uh, in Philly now, but is also kind of a small publisher. Mm-hmm. So uh, he introduced me to Barney. And at the time, it was a very simple project. Barney wanted to put out ebooks of the original Evergreen Reviews from the 1950s. But keep in mind, this is 2001. So yeah. an ebook is actually, they haven't, ha- I mean, they're happening, but it's still something people aren't really buying ebooks yet. It's kind of but, very ahead of the game. Well, it? that's the thing I learned. I mean, this is my introduction to Barney, but then that's what I learned that technologically and socially, he was always right, but just too early, you know? <laughs> like, but he was often totally right. Because um, he, he was in his 70s or so at the time? He was right? in his late 70s at yeah. the time, yeah. I think he had his 80th birthday around that time, maybe in 02 or 03. Okay. So I started working on him literally just scanning and making PDFs of, of the first few issues of Evergreen Review, which began in the 50s. So funny. And he had his whole archive in the loft at the time. You know, some parts had gone on to, I think, Syracuse, mm-hmm. some stuff that was more like the corporate stuff with Grove Press. Um, some things had, I think, a few th- letters 
were at Boston College for some reason, but most of the stuff was still in his apartment. Uh, he was he didn't found Grove Press, but he bought it when he was young in the early, in the fifties. Uh, he was from a wealthy banking family in Chicago, was, became a real bohemian after the war, was uh, the first husband, or his first wife was Joan Mitchell, yeah. uh, the painter, who he uh, credited with basically opening up his eyes to, to culture in a general sense, and like she was the gateway for him. Um, I think, uh, you know, and they remained friends throughout their lives, even though they did, they were, you know, just a first wife for him. Yeah. Uh, but no, but I mean, but, sure. but I mean, it didn't work out. But yeah, what I yeah. mean is they, they stuck together as friends for a very long time. I actually, what's really funny is I saw this early interview with Joan, well, not early, I guess it would be a late interview with Joan Mitchell from the early 70s on Port-A-Pack that uh, Lynn Blumenthal did, ah, I think, in the early 70s. And I'd never seen Joan Mitchell actually, like, live articulating things. She and Barney had the same mannerisms it was really weird wow. and you know how that happens when people who are like that close like just they just she looked like barney in a wig i was just like <laughs> it's it was so strange and i was like wow they really were you know they must have been very tight that's so interesting and of course like someone who are you i mean i don't know i would never think of john mitchell as like being uh reading this book or like kind of culture no like, yeah and and i don't think that yeah I, I don't get the sense that she was moving in the same circles but they were you know forever but yeah. at that time that was made a big impression on him yeah that i think they knew each other in paris so when he came back he wanted to be a filmmaker and he produced some really you know a really important film that bombed hugely called strange victory that was a documentary made in the late 50s about uh, I'm sorry, late 40s, right after the war, basically about how black soldiers came back home after fighting fascism, fascism abroad, but then came home to Jim Crow, which was basically fascism. Right. And so this is a very contempt. I mean, for today's discourse, this is an extremely contemporary argument. People were definitely not ready for it yeah. in the late 1940s. Yeah, yeah. It like totally did. No one would show it. Um, uh, it showed at this one movie theater that made no money, but it got like endorsements from W. Uh, e. B. Didn't du Bois. Did show a leftist? A leftist, like a communist movie theater, Some, and then yes. like the, the yeah. movie theater was like shut down. Something like that. I think <laughs> yeah. it showed for me one weekend or something. Yeah. It disappeared. So that was a wash. But, but you so know, he he was erratic kind of from the beginning, like yes. very politically uh, and and uh, interested in radical politics. Though. Yes, he was one of those. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I think of this as a type uh, having gone to an Ivy League, but it's a, a kind of a boarding school radical, which is what he actually really was. Interesting. Uh, he went to some sort of elite boarding school. His best friend was. Haskell Wexler, um, uh, the cinematographer, and they were co-captains of the football team together and dated the same girl. Oh, there so you go. yeah, they were lifelong friends as well. Um, he, uh, but he started a zine or magazine in high school called the Anti Everything, and he organized a <laughs> protest against Gone with the Wind for being racist. Oh right, right. Yeah. yeah. So again, like well, this um, is when Gone with the Wind was in theaters. Yeah. Like, like, so yeah, very contemporary. So he again. Wait, sorry. He yeah. he started a zine in. The 30s. Yeah. Well, a magazine, a small magazine. Yeah. Called Anti Everything. Anti Everything. Yeah. Very progressive. Yeah. 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 And then he was in the Signal Corps during the war. Uh, He was a photographer. He has some beautiful photographs that someone should publish sometime that have been exhibited of China during the war that he shot that are really amazing. Um, Yeah. When he came back, he bought Grove Press for nothing because it was like this little press that someone had started on Grove Street. In the West Village, and I think they had only published one or two books already. One being a Henry James reissue, and that's back when like what you literally were buying was like the press. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You bought, well, no, not the press, press. But yeah. you bought. He bought like a suitcase full of books. Yeah, like he, they were the publisher, not the press. Uh-huh. But 
but yeah, uh, but then he built on that and built it into the Grove Press that would change, you know, literature in the 20th century in America, basically, yeah. by bringing in all these amazing uh, translations of European literature that otherwise might not have had a home. And right. we really promoted Samuel Beckett and Jean Genet and, uh, and uh, uh, Kensbury Oe and, uh, you know, later like William Burroughs, uh, you know, the really amazing stuff that uh, the Grove got behind. Another Grove innovation a lot, a lot of people don't know about is that they basically, I mean, by some accounts, they basically invented the kind of quality trade paperback. Uh, Before that, paperbacks definitely existed and definitely presses put them out, but they were always thought of as like a secondary thing. He basically got a really good graphic designer, Roy Coleman, to do these covers. And he thought if we can put like basically at the time thinking modern art covers on these covers, it basically makes uh, something that, you know, will last, will last. And so that again, that model is something that we're still using today. Um, And then, you know, but all this time he's doing publishing, he's still really interested in film. And that's what the book really comes out, because when I started working with him, I started noticing especially as Evergreen went on. Evergreen Review was the journal that he would found at Grove Press in the 50s that initially was very tied to the Beat Generation. Um, uh, I found that as time went on, there was really a lot of film journalism in Evergreen, like really good stuff, stuff by major writers that I'd never seen anywhere else, you know? People like Parker Tyler, who I'm really interested in, but also like some writing by Amos Vogel, um, uh, Nat Hentoff, who's not really known as a film writer, had a, mo- a, f- a regular film column. Um, you know, this was the journal that was the first place to, to publish Against Interpretation by Susan Sontag. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, what's, I asked him, like, what's going on with that? And it turns out that I had hit, I hit a nerve because like this was his passion that uh, his relationship to film and he felt that no one had ever really considered this because whenever people were writing about Grove, quite understandably, they were really interested in his lifelong friendship with Samuel Beckett right. and like, you know, or, you know, what he had done with, again, censorship because he fought all these censorship battles for Lady Chatterley's Lover and other, and Naked Lunch and other, you know. So understandably, a lot of the literary historians, that's what they were interested in. And no one had really paid attention to what he had been doing in film. So how do you think that happened? Like that transit? Because it was so, it was so vibrant in France. Yeah. At in the like the same time period. And it wasn't immediately like Evergreen's uh, purview. And right. And then they kind of like just sort of organically. How do you think? Like, just do you think it was just his impetus? That- yeah. I do. I mean, I, I they kind of faded into it. It wasn't like there was a single start. But he's, you know, in the late, yeah, in the beginning, the journal was primarily literary. literary. It didn't even really have much nonfiction. It was short stories, huh. poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as things went on, he started adding more things to the magazine. And then, uh, you know, maybe a good 10 years in, um, he starts this thing called Evergreen Theater, which he wants to produce uh, plays by authors. I'm sorry, produce films by authors. Like, basically, the idea is, excuse me, he's actually looking at France and seeing that you know, there are a lot of literary people like Marguerite Duras, yeah. uh, uh, Alain René, I mean, sorry, I'm sorry, uh, Rob Grier, um, and others who are literary figures. I mean, 
if you remember, Godard and Truffaut began as film critics, you know? So, like, he sees that there's something happening where literary figures could move over and make great cinema. And so he decides to start doing that. So he contacts all these authors he's working with, Jean Genet. Yeah, kind of murderers, um, right? Yeah, an amazing, yeah. amazing group of people. Uh, also, um, Ionesco. Dura, Ionesco, right. Um, and he commissions play, play, um, screenplays from them. He actually does this with this guy who has a television production company, Four Star Theater, because, and this is again, very, you know, in internet terms today, television was relatively new and they needed a lot of content. Yeah. So they were really, there was a boom market for original content for TV. So the, he went in that window and nobody would do it except for, nobody really went through with it except for um, some, Mamet produced a screenplay that wasn't made and then he remade into something else. Uh, Rope Gray and Dura wrote screenplays that were too long and they also made into other things. But Samuel Beckett made the, the only film out of right. that project. Is Which a is film. a really weird fi- I mean, yeah. film, right? With a... Can you describe that film? Uh, it's, a, it's a film called Film, so it's often difficult to talk about verbally. Yeah. <laughs> so like Samuel Beckett's film is a film called Film that is an original screenplay for the cinema. It is an almost entirely silent film, which was what was interesting to him. He wanted to tell the story you know, more or less visually, yeah. mm-hmm. um, uh, which is obviously very different from his plays. And uh, it stars Buster Keaton, of all people, who at that time, it's actually one of his last roles. I know, Love crazy. Buster. Yeah, and the story goes. <laughs> but the dr- he looks kind of horrified. I mean, it's like he's old. It's horrifying in a way. Like, yeah, like, there's a real. I mean, yeah, I don't know. David. It's his last role. It's one of his last roles. I think there may. I have to look into this. Yeah. It, it may or may not be his. It's definitely close to the one of the last. Yeah. But he, um, uh, yeah, at that time it was late in his life. He was an alcoholic apparently, and like they kind of pulled him out of it. You know. I don't know. It didn't sound very glamorous at the time, uh, but he put his and he didn't seem to understand the project really that much. He just it was a job for him. Yeah. But he did it, and I think he you know the performance is actually pretty good, and it's also history wins with Samuel Beckett directing a film with Buster Keaton. I mean, totally. I think we all can say that's a win. We're the winners. Yeah, we're yeah. the winners there. <laughs> so so that was the the early projects. The thing that really hits is he starts slowly distributing films that other people made. I think one of the first is Finnegan's Wake, an adaptation of Finnegan's Wake by uh, Mary Ellen Butte, who's like a kind of prominent experimental filmmaker in that time. Um, That's one of the early things. He starts picking up these little things that are literary related, thinking, you know, and this is part of his bigger idea, which is what the book really, I think, was I was able to talk about was that he had this vision for the publishers that publishing as the media was changing you know and everyone at that time is talking about McLuhan and all these kinds of things and McLuhan actually is published in Evergreen later on um, as the media is changes uh, it changes uh, publishing he starts to think isn't really just about books that publishing is about all sorts of things that could be published and distributed. And he starts thinking of cinema in a, in a sense, I think, as an extension of publishing. There's a part, uh, uh, so he, they start picking up films to distribute, uh, and then they happen to get a big hit, which is I Am Curious Yellow, which is a film that a lot of people have seen, and if they haven't seen, they've heard of. I yeah. mean, it's at the level of, it can be a Simpsons joke, yeah. it's that famous. In Mad know? Men. Yeah, Mad Men. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right, there's a whole uh, episode it's a of Simpsons Simpsons joke? Yeah, there's yeah, definitely, definitely. I think there's a title. Yes, yeah. definitely. Well, I mean, yeah. everything's a Simpsons joke at this point. Yeah, and the yellow <laughs> helps, obviously. Yeah, it's yeah. a natural yeah. segue, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah. Sorry, that's... Uh, what you said about him being ahead of his time it's kind of amazing when you think about like how like publishing now is like kind of scrambling to incorporate video content totally the when, push to video yeah <laughs> well the that's pivot. The pivot yeah. To video, yeah, right. pivot to video actually this is, yeah well anyway 
he he uh so i'm curious yellow was a surprise hit uh and it was really helped by the legacy of grove which was already known for for uh selling like quote unquote dirty books which is what he always hated that because it's obviously this is the guy that was publishing Beckett for yeah, Christ's yeah. sake like can we not you know yeah. be a little bit more but in the greater culture that it was this weird thing where that I think helped him get publicity for everything so he kind of maybe put up with that role as being a kind of proto um uh, Larry Flint almost yeah. you know and you have being, in the book some of the like early ads or things yeah. that seem to like push into that yeah uh, for yeah. sure and, and that's how yeah. i am curious yellow was certainly positioned at exactly the time. like yeah. as sort of a soft porn uh you can speak more to it yeah no but i think that's exactly right i mean by if we look at it today it looks like soft porn right or but it's not really i mean the sex scenes aren't even that central to it um it's more kind of political documentary blend of documentary and fiction um martin luther king jr is in it bizarrely like because he really? happened to be in yeah he happened to go to stockholm to get the nobel prize so the filmmaker films a scene where the characters are at that so a la you know kind of like mixing documentary yeah. and fiction yeah so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on beyond like the explicit sex scenes yeah. but as you said that's what uh they sold it as and it was an enormous hit i mean it made the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars and so then they decided well we're going to go into film much more seriously and they really started buying up titles um they hired amos vogel who was formerly of cinema 16 to kind of oversee this they hired this um uh, a bunch of other people specific to film distribution uh, and they started expanding and they became for a, a good window of time i'd say between like 68 and around 72 one of the major independent film di distributors in the united states they were distributing susan sontag's films agnes varda um uh, godard and they were producing many of these as well um they they did they had long legal fights over i'm curious yellow that eventually uh, led to the removal of obscenity laws, which in turn led to the adoption of the movie uh, motion picture uh, code right. so for ratings. So basically what happened was once those obscenity laws started getting struck down, the movie theaters had this problem because before that anyone could go to see any movie. So if they were going to have explicit material in films, they decided they would self-regulate and have like a age-based guide. Yeah. And so that came out, that necessity came out of the fact that Grove for you know basically removed the laws and allowed feature films to have more explicit nudity and other kinds of things um, and then uh, so this goes on for a little bit but you know nothing makes money like uh, uh, he was lucky with I'm curious like right. he had really good taste in artists of which artists he he got uh, and they did uh, what I think there's one of their second biggest things they ever distributed was weekend by Godard which they distributed in the US Interesting. yeah which would make sense yeah. um, but, you know, a lot of other stuff, it's almost like his taste and the taste of the people around there was too avant-garde. Like they were, <laughs> Amos Vogel was buying up like obscure Eastern European films that still today are like obscure, you know, like they're amazing stuff, but not exactly what you want to pick up if you want to make a lot of money. Right. Yeah, Weekend is a crowd pleaser. Yeah, relatively. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Yeah. And, um, and then by the early 70s, there's a there's a general recession in the U.S. A lot of companies suffer, but at this juncture, it's a particularly bad time for Grove because they've they've threw all this money into film distribution that they didn't recoup. Uh, so they have to start like kind of dismantling things, and they start dismantling the whole film division in the early '70s. And then by the early '80s, 
uh, uh, Barney Grove is bought by Atlantic, and they remove Barney because he's considered too complicated to deal with. Wow. And uh, they boot him from his own company. And uh, he takes Evergreen with him because that's part of the deal. Uh, since he started that within Grove, and then they just have the Grove titles. The film stuff just was abandoned. Nobody wanted it because around that time, it was just not considered valuable. Right. So the prints either went back to the original filmmakers, and a bunch of them ended up at the Harvard Film Archive through a means that I had to research that still doesn't, I don't totally understand how they got there. Wow. But they, they were like <laughs> at anthology and kicked around other places and then ended up there. Yeah. So they have the archive of the films at, at Harvard. They've got his paper archive now at Columbia that I originally used and another whole set of archives from the company itself in Syracuse. So I kind of went through all these things. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now again, this is a long story. Oh. <laughs> well, well, but, well, and also, yeah. but the book is, is, I mean, just to be, you know, the book is not, uh, uh, is like an anthology of yes. works from the, um, from the, the press, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, long story short, as I was doing, as I said, we should do a collection of these things if we were done at Barney. He's like, yes, and I want a history of my involvement in film as well. Right. And that's what he was. And so we worked on that together for a very long time. For a number of reasons, uh, he was going to do it through his own press, which was called Fox Rock at the time, but they were behind with other titles, and it just it, it kind of faltered even though we finished it and it didn't get out. And it kind of I, over the years, I tried to pitch it to different publishers, but no one would bite. And then after he died in 2012, the manuscript oh. kind of found its way to Seven Stories, and that's and they have a history with him because the founders of Seven Stories worked for Barney. Uh, in the last, late days of Grove. So they have an investment, a personal investment. So they got behind it and they did a beautiful job. The, the, the design is by Sam Ashby, who is a really fantastic um, filmmaker and uh, graphic designer. He's really, he just does a lot of big movie uh, posters and marketing in the UK. Um, and he has a zine called Little Joe that's really fantastic. But yeah. this is his first book. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. book. Although, yeah. unfortunately, it's audio, so we can't really... <laughs> fully <laughs> yeah uh showcase the book um it's a dense book yeah very small font <laughs> <laughs> well he was trying to fit a lot in yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh he also uses that two column thing which normally i don't like in books but it, it, it's nice for a magazine anthology because that's mm -hmm. how the magazine was laid out as right because well. it kind of captures like a, yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah it feels it feels like the layout is represented totally yeah but so the writing is like I mean one of the things that kind of comes through as you sort of scan through it is just like and maybe it's kind of implicit in what you've been saying about his particular role but just uh, a time when like a certain kind of leftist politics or like you know like a, a ideas of both like the avant-garde or things were kind of clearer and like but also more uh, maybe more contentious in a way like yeah um, yeah I mean it's interesting to at this moment particularly to like be like oh yeah wow this is like because it feels distant but also super uh related to a lot of you know contemporary totally i mean you you really get the feeling of the left as not being this one thing at the time at all but yeah. rather a bunch of different factions that don't agree with one another in the argument and he's in the middle of some of those arguments or at least grove and what they do is and a lot of what they're writing about is jumping into those arguments yeah. and kind of he very i mean for example there was a kind of split between Godard's kind of Maoist Marxism and what the American radicals were doing in the late 60s. Like maybe if later in the 70s, that would have been different. But at that time, 
by all reports, they brought over Godard and Jean-Pierre Garin to do a college tour of the films that they produced. And apparently they, they loved seeing Godard because they knew Godard, but they knew Weekend. And then they, they were bringing the Zsigavertov, Marx, more you know Maoist films that are much more experimental. And they did not go over well because they were just out of sync with what the discussion was like politically. Right. Um, or maybe they were a little ahead of that discussion is, is another way to put it. But the big thing that happened was his clash with feminism because he, okay, the role of women and as you say, yeah. men, I, talking about men. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because the other funny, I mean, as you read yeah. the introductory essay, it's like striking how many kind of big uh, like moments that I've either heard about or uh, seen online like where you know, uh, encapsulated in this, like, story, both, like, Beckett, um, you know, uh, film, but then also the famous, you know, Norman Mailer, like, uh, uh, what's the shooting of, of his, like, uh, ridiculous movie, which is, uh, I think, Maid, what, Maiden? Um, Maidenstone. Yeah, yeah, Maidenstone was, like, that, Maidstone, you know, sorry, famous uh, Rip Torn yeah. fight, and, like, all yes. kind of, like, revolves around. But then, and then it made me think about, uh, I mean, just Mailer's, like, kind of complicated, I mean, he's a very unfashionable figure uh, at the yeah. moment, but someone, I mean, I, I at least liked at a younger age, and, uh, um, but he it kind of encapsulates a lot of the uh, I don't know as you say that that sort of swirling tension with like feminism now and then back then as well. Well, I think Mailer is important to keep in mind because I mean there's this one part where I talked to Barney about they brought they sh they also distributed Mailer's films, not yeah. Maidstone I don't think, but Above the Law uh, and um, I'm sorry Beyond the Law and uh, another film that I'm spacing out on. Please yeah. edit that out. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, I think that his persona, this kind of macho leftist, yeah. anti-war, like that kind of thing, it really that you get the vibe of these got these Grove guys. I mean, I feel like that's what you feel. The weird thing about it though is that while it's a real boys club, I mean, from today's standpoint, I think it's surprising and it really shocked me. Yeah. But like it's it's a boys club, but they're like straight and gay. It's kind of like like Parker Tyler is openly basically openly gay, writes the very first thing published about a essay on Andy Warhol's filmmaking in Evergreen. Uh, they, um, you know, it's this thing where there's simultaneously these kind of macho leftist guys and these openly gay and openly bi guys as writers. And you're like, wait, this is all before Stonewall. Yeah. Like this kind of messes with my chronology of how things work. I mean, I think because it would have been the '60s or like I mean, yeah, this yeah. is like mid to late '60s, right before Stonewall. Yeah. Um, one of his main writers, Dotson Rader, publishes an autobiographical novel about being a hustler. You know, like it's like, <laughs> and it really screws with you because I think, I, in my mind, as a kind of college gay from yeah. the late '80s or whatever, I always imagine that like feminism and gay rights and and queer rights are kind of aligned. Yeah. Oh, and it, not so. No, of course, but I mean, in my own life, they're in your well, heart. Yeah. In my own life, the, I feel of them on the same if there's a sides yeah. they're on mm -hmm. the same side but here is a case where they're not on the same side they're very clearly on opposite sides um because them so basically there's very few i mean there's relatively few women writers uh in the anthology although the women writers he did publish were exemplary i mean yeah. he had like sontag and marguerite dura and like freda graffa who's this incredible german film critic and so there's some really exemplary voices but it's definitely nu numerically very small and I, you get the sense that within the offices of Grove, uh, there was this there was this unionization push, and as part of that, the women got really involved, and they eventually Robin Morgan, who would go on to become a very prominent feminist in the uh, early seventies, uh, who was working for them, and she kind of led the charge, and they occupied Grove's offices and locked him out. 
and made demands. And it was all related to the unionization. So the unions and the feminists were on one side and then like these kind of, I don't know, you do get the sense too that Barney, the one thing you have to understand, he's not actually that generation. Like he's not the same age as the people who are buying Evergreen at the time. He's more like the 50s generation Hefner generation, more radical than Hefner, obviously, but yeah. but he's having a cocktail. He's not smoking weed, right? You know, like in, in Mad Men terms, yeah. like that's his. So there, I think that there's a generational split, and he, I'll tell you, to the day I, you know, the last time I talked to him about it, he never cr- quite got over this, and never, I don't think he ever totally could digest what happened. He really felt betrayed. He, he was always like, well, I gave these women jobs and we were on their side. I mean, he kept like, we're on their side. It sounds a lot like today's kind of yeah. conversations. Mm-hmm. I don't think it ever quite sunk in that they were not just upset about like working conditions, but also the fact that like, you know, every issue of Evergreen was advertised with a nudie girl on the cover. Right. You they, know, it looks kind of Carl's Jr. like American Apparel-ish, like sort of a, a little bit. Or, a Carl's little bit, yeah. Jr.? Carl's Jr. Oh, wait, what? you're thinking like, well, because... What am I thinking of? Yeah. The, uh, what are you thinking of? Hot like girls the... eating uh, uh, um, yeah. hamburgers. Yeah, oh. exactly. Yeah. Oh, God. By today's standards, it looks David, really like, that's backwards. like such a yeah. weird touchstone for like... Well, he he, uh, <laughs> like female exploitation, but okay. Yeah, well, he, the guy who like masterminded all that is now in the or was in the administration, I think, until like, what's his name? I'm a putster. Um, really uh, I mean, it's surprising, yeah. but it's yeah. not surprising. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of it's amazing um, when you look at women who even write on film. Like one of the greatest writers that I can think of, who's a friend, um, Melissa Anderson. Like she's awesome like, yeah. yeah. She's like one of the only women who write on cinema and it's insane. Like it's it's just kind of it has continued to be sort of like a black hole for women. And yeah. what you're saying, I'm sorry, I'm, that wasn't very articulate. No, but that's but very like, true. It's very true. Yeah. Film Twitter is still like male dominated, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, you know, it, it's true. I mean, the, it, uh, the whole film world, I think you could say there's a lot of I mean, with some exceptions, I think that um, you know, there's definitely inroads been made, but independent film world, I mean, it's still male dominated, still, you see it happen. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, but in any case, those kinds of tensions are certainly not gone, but you see them really dramatized quite sharply in this story at Grove. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so the two things, I mean, there's kind of a Uber idea that I kind of had about like in reading this about like, uh, Distribution, I guess, which mm. seems to be a huge part of the introductory essay that you uh, write here, and also um, comes up kind of through Seth Price's, you know, classic dispersion essay, and some of the other writing that, that uh, you know, have kind of mainlined a, of yours in, this morning. Um, so, but but I think, but first, I was thinking maybe we talk about uh, just kind of the role of the writer, or like, you know, I mean, since the other element of, of kind of autobiography in this is like goes back to your position as yeah. like a you know a film writer and someone who's like existed in that uh, career for, uh, I mean, I think over two three decades now, right? Uh, I don't know about three. Um, yeah. Since like uh, <laughs> uh, 20, 20, 20 years, about like yeah. a couple decades. Yeah, three decades would be cool, but I would have been a little young starting. So it's a hot you number. Call it that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But so, I mean, because you worked at the Village Voice, right? As a, I did, yeah. yeah. I, was a, I, was a, I was a regular writer for the Village Voice for about, I don't know, eight years. Yeah. Um, before that, I was at the New York Press, which I don't 
think is still around or might still be. But <laughs> for many years, this was kind of like the rival tabloid side. Like the other weekly besides The Village Voice was its rival, the New York Press. And they had a lot of rambunctious film critics at one point, like Godfrey Cheshire, Armand White got his oh, started wow. at the New York Press. Interesting. Uh, and Mad Zoller Seitz, who, I still, who still writes for various places. Yeah. Um, so, and this was, they were known as having, if The Voice had started to become kind of the genteel, not genteel, but like the establishment. Yeah. The, the press really saw itself as like, we're the crazy guys. Um, so they brought me on just through a mutual friend and I started writing for them in the late 90s. And then uh, when Dennis Lim came in as the new head of The Village Voice, uh, Amy Taubin had left and they needed someone to cover ex- uh, avant-garde films specifically. And so he sought me out because that, that's what I was writing about at the New York Press. Wow. And that, so then, I feel like that's yeah. like a... Uh, that's like a bracket that doesn't exist anymore. Like, we need someone to cover the avant-garde film beat. Yeah, well, that... <laughs> what's interesting, I mean, there's real material reasons for that in terms of publications. I mean, yeah. you might not... You may know this or not, I don't know, but uh, for magazine, there's very few of these publications left, but ma- places like The Village Voice at the time had a concept in the film div- coverage of something called full coverage, which means that you cover everything that comes out uh, in the city that that week, wow. so every single week everything's covered, and uh, you could do that. I mean, there was you know it was tough after a while to fit everything, but they would do things with capsules or something. And so because of full coverage, you need some people who can write about everything because you know you need people that can write about Bollywood, you need people that can write about yeah, yeah. you know uh, action movies, and you need people who can write about retrospectives and blah blah blah. So, yeah, I mean, that's tied to the idea of what a publication is, that we don't really have that anymore. Things have really s- splintered, and we don't have that kind of idea of total coverage. Um, the Even the New York Times doesn't, I don't think, hold to that anymore. They used to, uh, I think they used, maybe they still do review everything that's released, hmm. but they might not, it might not be very much now. I'm not yeah, really sure. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that. Maybe they yeah. don't anymore. Although you can tell, yeah. like, when you see Manolo, I'm not sure how to pronounce their name Manolo Dargis's like review of the latest comic book franchise film like you can see the like reticence and the sort of <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> begrudging <laughs> yeah I think so she I mean she got her start writing about avant-garde film at The Voice you yeah. know she was yeah so I get it and um but yeah, so the idea of full coverage at The Voice, uh, how did we get on that? I well, that. so at, at that period, yeah. you were, I mean, week to week, you were like, you would be reviewing like one movie. I and mean, I'm kind of curious what the output like looked I'm like. I remember what I did. I mean, I think at The Voice, it was more like I had two to three pieces a month, yeah. I think it came out to. And this is the thing that will really blow your minds. For the, there was two a, to three pieces a month? Well, there's, some of them were short. Yeah. You know, but it's journalism. It's like Deadline at Dawn. It's a weekly Jeez. paper. Right, right. You're you don't a... know a hard deadline until that thing's going to actual paper. You know what I mean? Every no, I'm single jealous. week. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually I supported myself for like, you know, a good chunk of time simply from being a journalist. Right. I mean, it was insane. As a film critic, writing about avant garde film, I supported myself off that and then plus on the side, which I still do, is I write I do advertising copy for corporations as a kind of side gig. Uh-huh. So those two things together, plus relatively cheap rent yeah. at the time, I did it. And I was just like, I feel like I'll never do it again in my life. <laughs> it was like the last <laughs> historical time that was possible. But right. I somehow, at the very last minute, was able to do it uh, for just a few years. Yeah. Yeah. But did people perceive it? I mean, at what point did you kind of start to feel like this is not something that's like going to last or like it's not something I'm interested in like... 
making my main uh, source of output. Uh, well, I I would have loved to have if it could remain my main source yeah. of output, quite frankly. But the uh, you know uh, it, the internet changed that. I mean, as I was starting to write for the Voice, everybody was already talking about the changes that were coming because it. I mean. In the early 21st century, the changes, the way in which publications were getting hit by the internet was kind of in waves. Like first, like Craigslist came in and then the classifieds were dead. And yeah. then, you know, uh, online advertising starts ramping up and becoming more important. And that cuts into print advertising and like all these kinds of like steps in which the necessity of having a weekly paper starts becoming less and less and less. And there's less ways for that paper to make money to keep printing. And so those didn't come all at once. So all this time we're talking about it. There's a really great novel that was written by Ed Park during the time we were all working there. He worked in the offices. I was a freelancer, so I didn't, mm -hmm. called Personal Days, which is a thinly veiled uh, Romana Clay about, uh, about working at a, a company that is basically sinking and everyone knows <laughs> it. And it's based on working at The Voice at the time. Cause that time. So it was a long process, and we all knew things were coming and eventually there was a big bunch of purges oh and my then, golly. yeah people just got fired tons of really important writers like jay hoberman and robert criscow and people that these were the reasons why people were reading the voice were these big name yeah. critics and they were getting axed and uh then we were all like well if they're getting axed what do they actually want um and eventually it's just, they didn't really want anything so i started um i started kind of Towards the end of The Voice, I wrote a book called From Sun Tzu to Xbox. It right. was based on a, two articles I wrote for The Voice about the uh, military's involvement in the video game industry. And so I got a contract to write that book. So I, I delved into that, did that, did book tour for that. That helped me get a teaching job. So, I mean, I was teaching the whole time on the side. I just basically ramped up teaching a bard as uh, my writing income slowed down yeah but that that moment also when i was leaving the voice was also the time when the art world started getting really interested in film so i started segueing into art forum and then before i knew it everything i'm getting paid for for writing is basically in the art world and without me noticing it it just was like that's the money was switching around interesting you know personal note do you think it's a good time to be writing about the arts yeah. Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, yes, because there's so much more, there's so many more resources to find out about the arts and like being able to write about the arts now is probably easier in that sense. And there's a lot, there's, you can be exposed to things happening globally in a way that you couldn't before. Um, and there's a lot more access to reading other people's writing about the arts. But in terms of being able to make a living off it, you know, no. But yeah. that's the same for a lot of writing, right? Yeah. So no. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on what you want from it. If you want to make yeah. a living from it, probably no, but yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about the, the uh, book, the Sun Tzu book? Or, uh, I could a little bit, yeah. sure. I mean, you... well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I, one of the uh, um, things we were doing in researching this was watching this, you know, very somewhat infamous, I guess, Alex Jones' uh, appearance by you promoting that book, which oh, just yeah. sort of speaks to like a moment where... Yeah, very odd. Uh, Actually, can we just talk about that? Can we unpack a unpack that Alex for just Jones. a moment. Yeah. 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 Well, it does. It speaks to the moment big time. Yeah. I mean, so Alex Jones, as you know, is based, well, I don't know if I actually still is, but at the time it was based in Austin, Texas, which at the time, even, you know, it still is a big film town. Mm -hmm. He's and, a talk show personality with a yeah. right wing uh, political bent. For me, yes. Yeah. Infowar is kind of like all right. Like, uh, I mean, now, that's now like, we yeah. would classify as that. But, you know, uh, at the time, right. <laughs> the, it he was seen. It was definitely a fringe character. But if you keep in mind, this was under Bush 
And so his conspiracy theories is about how Bush did 9-11. And so weirdly, he was kind of, even though he was crazy, yeah. it was weirdly on, quote unquote, our side in a different way, totally. you know? And um, But he was crazy and erratic and... But he was also a real character in Austin. If you knew him, if you, you knew film people in Austin, he was in a couple of Richard Linklater movies. Oh, as, did, did cameos in them. He's an um, amazing broadcaster, like just like as a well, you know, personality. Yeah. Yeah, he was known as a kind of local character in Austin. He wasn't that famous outside of uh, that, I think yet. Yeah. Um, and then I at the Voice, I wrote a piece on uh, uh, conspiracy. Uh, videos basically the do you remember this film loose change sure yeah okay loose change was like basically an independent documentary that thought that it had put together the pieces by googling shit online yeah. and figured out that bush <laughs> did 9-11 or whatever right and it was made by like some teenagers upstate but it came became a weirdly big direct-to-video hit or whatever yeah. you call it at the time so alex jones had produced some of those things i wrote a whole feature for the voice about this phenomenon that i actually i've gone back and read my own piece a lot because I, without knowing it, of course, I was writing about all that kind of shit that would become the alt-right and yeah. memes and this weird conspiracy. It's all kind of there. Yeah, yeah, it's already there. But at the time, I'm like, oh, does everyone know these things are emerging on the Internet? These people making these videos claiming conspiracies? Yeah. So, Alex, th this is the weird thing, though. So, I was going to be in Austin because I... I curated the last edition of Cinema Texas, which was a really amazing and beloved film festival that ran for many years in Austin. And their last edition, they asked me to guest program uh, one section of it. So I did a show. I was there for a little bit. And he had heard, he had read the article about himself in the, cons <laughs> in the conspiracy theory article. And that's why I was there. Even though it was not a pro-conspiracy theory article, He any press was good press for him. So he wanted to talk to me. That's very true. And, also, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like... so I was like, I'm at the time, I'm like, Alex Jones show. Absolutely. Like, I, <laughs> if I have the opportunity to go on that. I mean, I love doing stuff like that. It looks you like know? you're having a good time. Yeah. I do. I do a lot. I've done a lot of media appearances over the years. And I enjoy doing weird ones. Yeah. Like, I'm. Well, if you go to IMDb, one of my only IMDb credits is that I'm a talking head on a, uh, uh, a BBC Five documentary called X-Rated, the celebrity <laughs> sex tapes that shocked the world. And it's my only IMDb credit. And one time at Bard, one of the students asked me, is like, is that you? And it, and there, and in there, I was like, yes. And there was like, it says you appear as himself. What does that mean? And I'm just like, okay. But so I really love that. I mean, the New York Underground Film Festival was a lot of it was about weirdo publicity. We yeah, would do yeah. all sorts of stunts to get publicity. Wait, I can't get yeah. past your your bard student who like <laughs> looked you up on IMDb. Well, why wouldn't you? I the film to... department. You got it. It's a you film department. I wanted to ask back. you about it. <laughs> <laughs> what so, had you been saying in that film? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was from a piece I wrote on the history of celebrity sex tapes that came out during the Paris Hilton sex tape. Ah, okay, mm. And for a long time, that was like... Golden age of sex tapes. The golden age, yeah. And that was online, <laughs> and it was one of the pop most popular articles Voice had at the time because it kept, every time a new sex tape come out, people would Google celebrity sex tape, and then they'd read this history of the genre. And so I started getting asked to be... No, I got asked to be on that show. What's the, where's the beginning of that genre? Uh, oh, well, we don't have them, but there are rumors that there are um, films. The most famous early rumors that Joan Crawford made stag films when really? she was a dancer before she was famous. Interesting. But none of them have ever been located, but there's... 
They're yeah. the myth of them. There's the myth of them. I mean, that's what the piece was about, which is actually very different from tapes today. Yeah. Which is that for many years, the the story of a sex tape or a sex film right. far preceded its actual, like, like what Stallone, it actually was. The, uh, right. That's the other big one. Yeah. yeah. Italian Stallion. Yeah. Was, yeah. It, when you see it, it's really not much, but the yeah. story is so good. Or the that's go- the frisson. Yeah. Is the, the story, the, the idea that you're... Exactly. Yeah. And You're given access. Exactly. And that, that it becomes this obscure, well, especially at the time, this obscure object that you have to find. Because, of course, you know, this is back in the days of 16mm or VHS or early torrenting. And so it's harder to find this stuff. You've got to seek it out. Now, of course, you just can't avoid it. Like a sex tape comes out and you're lucky yeah. you, it doesn't pop up on your iPhone <laughs> as a CNN alert. It's yeah, like, yeah. You know, like it's like, it's not the same thing. But yeah. Was the Paris Hilton sex tape released on VHS? No, no it was originally released. Well, it was originally leaked on LimeWire. Right. Oh, so that's LimeWire. where I got it. Yeah. Yeah. But then eventually it was released on DVD as One Night in Paris. Right. Because she did this thing where she. Um, somehow cut a deal to get a part of the proceeds i think and she's i can't remember savvy. extremely savvy didn't hurt her i mean it made her famous really <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um but so one of the things that i mean just to go back to this kind of like keep keep pushing this like uh because you because which thing Alex Jones. you really want to talk about alex jones no no because I, I was gonna say on, on the alex jones interview one of the things that you're talking about is like uh this kind of interest in like alternate distribution yeah. uh systems and um both i think you talk about like a, a mormon um yes. uh, film festival. oh i do yeah Oh, and, interesting. Um, yeah, I'd done. Yeah, but which all both seems kind of both back to the to the book, but then uh, kind of ties into some of the other uh, more recent writings you've been doing, both about like that kind of space between net art and um, I guess what we'll call kind of loosely post-internet. Uh, but so I, I maybe kind of curious, like how you kind of try. I mean, you, you referenced it a little bit as you're talking about like that move from film to art, like as a kind of primary frame for this interest, um, which happens a little bit after, I guess, the Alex Jones. Yeah. You know, yeah. But it would have been 2006, right? I think that appearance. Yeah, a tiny bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all bleeding together. I mean, um, that's a good question. I mean, like I said, it was kind of a fade in for me. I can't say that there was a, a, a break. Yeah. But um, I was early on the internet, um, just whatever that means. Like yeah. in the early 90s, I was, I was on BBSs before there was the web. I'm not claiming to be like a super nerd. I was just yeah, yeah. early and it's generational. What's BBS? A BBS was a bulletin board service. They were like these private uh, networks that you would go on before the uh, internet. I'm sorry, before the web existed, you would dial in directly to somebody's server and then you would all chat on this little private thing. They were, they were popular for all sorts of reasons. Um, and they were there, you know, during the time like Echo was a big BBS service in, in New York City, and then the Well was doing a similar thing in uh, the Silicon Valley. So these were seen as like early places where people were discussing things online. Yeah. And so I was I was early on that. And like when New York Underground, when I started working with them, I put up their website in 1996, and we were actually super early for a film festival to have a website. That ah. it was film festivals were waited a bit. Like there was a delay. 96 is very early. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You had so, like some screensavers and like a yeah, like an icon. So I got into net art mostly just by seeing it online. I would there was this thing called Hell.com that was this really amazing portal that you had to I think get a secret invite to, and then you could go inside and they would have net art exhibits. And I saw like Jody and. Entropy 8 Zuper and all these other early uh, people and then um, how did it all come together and then I started working for an internet company and I don't know I was in the internet culture before I was into talking about net art so to speak or does that make sense yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. I also worked uh, in the 90s for a very early internet 
research firm that was contracted to Miramax uh, that yeah. wrote uh, basically a read. I wrote. I've written a piece about this that about that wrote. I would go to work every day and sit down and read the entire internet. And just basically look for mentions of Miramax movies and report wow. them to Miramax. And then after a while, they wanted us to start chatter about the movies. So we would go onto like chat rooms and be like, "Hey, fellow teens, what do you think of Shall We Dance or the <laughs> Crow Resurrection?" You know. Wow. And so we were doing this in the '90s, like super early. Um, and were so were you I, interfacing with Harvey Weinstein? Not directly. We went through uh, her, his head publicist. Mm. Uh, his all of his publicists at the time were really. Hot young women. Let's just. I mean, now that now. So weird. I know. Well, at the <laughs> must be a coincidence. I mean, I will say I'd never heard anything about that. Yeah. At the time, at all, zero. However, there were a lot of weird things that immediately when I heard that story, I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense now. Like, like the way in which he would ask us to like promote. Like we'd get a weird through his publicist would be like, this Mira Servino movie. Make sure to promote it. Like there were these weird notes we would get about specific people and promoting them. That now I was like, oh, that's what that was about. And the, at the time, I was just like, oh, this must be some like super savvy yeah, yeah. film publicity move. <laughs> like they they understand that Annabella Cerati's, you know, her her like stock is rising. They want to jump on it. But now I realize, no, it's not. It was just some dumb right. like it really was a conspiracy. Yeah, it was just some dumb decision like based on a really bad action. Yeah, anyway, so yeah. I did that for a few years. So what I'm saying is early on the internet, so I think that gave me a taste for internet culture. And then as uh, I think I started getting involved with seriously writing about art and the internet more in the tw early 21st century, you yeah. know, we it, it, actually, I, I, now I'm remembering all these connections at New York Underground Film Festival. A lot of people don't know this, but artists like Corey Archangel, Seth Price, uh, Paul Chan, just to name three, all started were showing at film festivals before they showed at any galleries or anything in right, the city, right. you know? They, um, Seth Price was originally a filmmaker and right. he showed his films early on. He famously worked at, like, what, what's the... Yeah, yeah, he yeah, worked exactly. at yeah, yeah. Wait, and, no, say it. Oh, it's uh, the electronic... Just, I, electronic the Arts yeah. Intermix, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, one of oh the God. oldest distributors of uh, video art right. and, and artist video. Yeah, so he was their technical manager for a while. Uh, one of the things they do is distribution. So, you know, I've written a piece about uh, this uh, because I knew Seth back then. And uh, he, I wrote a piece about this for a, his recent catalog. Just like, you know, it's no surprise that somebody who begins theorizing distribution yeah. for the art world is literally working at a video distributor at the time. Totally. So these things are all tied together. Um, so, yeah, so these guys and some other people were showing at film festivals and I would know them that way first. And then this thing starts happening in the early 21st century where some of them really start making a run, making breaking into the art world. Um, you know, there's the 2002 Biennial that includes, I think, uh, Corey's uh, yeah, Super Mario, Mario Clouds. Yeah. And then, you know, other groups like Paper Rad and Force Field. I mean, these are all groups that were in the music and film scenes. They were not in the art world proper as we would understand it today. Mm -hmm. But also what was happening is the art world proper was changing and all these small young galleries were opening up, like at that time, Foxy Production, yeah. that were willing to take on, let you know, at the time maybe fringier uh, artists, right? Yeah. If that, I don't even know if that's the best way to say it, but the market expanded and it could hold more things. And suddenly, these things that maybe weren't part of the art world in a serious way became so, uh, and people's careers evolved and changed. But with that, I did as well. So if those artists did that for their own work without really planning it, you know, just by following who's going to pay me to do something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a curator and critic, I kind of followed that as well. Yeah, that makes sense.
is, or you can want to dream of that discussion should be. And, yeah. uh, at least that's something I read you uh, say in interviews. Uh, that book called Mass Effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, I mean, you at least had been saying that you felt like there was a, like a problem with even the term post-internet and how that yeah. kind of art was being, the art that it sounds like you kind of uh, slid into was being historicized um, in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly it. I mean, and this has to do also with my uh, co-editor, Lauren Cornell. Yeah. We knew each other from uh, early on because she was began as a film programmer, which some people might not know. So her beginning is also in film. Yeah. We knew each other through that route. She ran this uh, micro cinema in Brooklyn called uh, Ocularis that would end in the early mid-O's, I think. Um, and then she moved into net art through Rhizome uh, and then really kind of changed, I think, you know, was a very big force in that field and helping yeah. define the art form during those years. And she created the, uh, what was that? Two new- triennials. Yeah, right. uh, the first triennial or Unmonumental? Or? First triennial yeah. and then the triennial before this one, right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Yeah, and then she also did a show called Free that was very influential, that it was kind of made a statement about internet art. Yeah. Um, and then she did obviously many things through Rhizome, like many, many. Um, so yeah, we yeah exactly. That's exactly that. These are artists like Corey and Seth and Paul Chan that we you know grew up with and saw their work develop. And <clears throat> the word post-internet was getting thrown around a lot. And one of the you know so when we started doing this uh, the collection, we were approached by the New Museum. They wanted to relaunch their series of collections of essays like this, and um, they wanted to do one on the internet. So initially, that was just the only idea, just about internet art. But then when we looked at the literature, we were like, well, there's so much literature relatively about the 20th century. Like the 90s internet art has been really highly historicized and written about. So we decided to start from the 20th century, rather, because we felt like that hadn't been historicized that well. And one of the big problems was this idea of post-internet, because it kind of like, in a dumb way, the word, you know, whether this was its intention or not, I feel like the way it ended up getting used was just this really simplistic way that like somehow these this is the art that emerges after the internet. And the whole question is, well, the internet has been around since 1969. Which internet do you need? Yeah. Do you mean the pre-web internet? Do you mean the early web? Do you mean pre-social media, late web? Yeah. You know, fl- you know uh, which which era of the web? Uh, or of the internet, do you imagine is brand new? Because it's not, and the artists have been doing it for many, many years. So we thought that one thing Mass Effect could do is without, you know, we do talk about that a little in the intro, but we didn't really more, we weren't really more about critiquing the idea of post-internet rather than expanding the whole discourse and saying, look, here are all the different micro ages of the internet that have emerged in the, just in the 21st century, and here's all these different writings by artists and critics about what these things mean at that time, yeah. because the internet moves so quickly. You, you know, 15 years of history is a long history, yeah. and you really need to have guideposts. And so we found ourselves when we were editing it and trying to think, okay, are we covering everything? Getting really micromanaging with like, like, okay, what about those six months in 2003? Like, you know, <laughs> like I mean, not that bad, but that's how fast the history goes. Yeah. Well, and it's especially when you're looking at the internet, because like unlike other sort of cultural phenomenons, it has made such dynamic changes in both like life as you experience it and in its own sort of in itself that looking at it from a month to month perspective kind of is necessary, right? Yeah, like, pretty much. I mean, and that that gets to another point that we tried very hard in Mass Effect to, to do. You know, we looked at a lot of other readers about the internet and one of the problems with them when they came out of the art world or academia 
is this problem the internet as culture versus internet as specifically an art form yeah. or as a as a medium for art or as a topic for art because a lot of times these top these readers would be really interested in just kind of exploring the internet as a whole and and before you know it you're reading an essay that's about tumblr but it's not really about art you yeah. know so we were trying to be really picky and say okay we want the what is the discussion specifically about art not simply like the internet as culture in general because you can learn about that from another reader we weren't right. a very focused reader um and we wanted one place where you could have like major essays like dispersion and so forth in one kind of collection you can read the early work of alex galloway yeah you know those kinds of things um so they're, they're in their own context so to speak as an ongoing discussion yeah i mean it's, i mean I, I, it makes me think of the moment i guess in the free essay that you wrote it was talking about like a joel homberg piece yeah. i think and sort of talks about like how uh, like if you saw I mean I think that piece was him asking questions on like Yahoo questions right and so the um, the, the work like lived both on the internet you know, on, and through Yahoo and then uh, later would be printed and like shown in the museum and uh, like exists in these kind of different spaces one in one of which it is art and the other of which it just would be noise or almost indistinguishable from like the the river of other questions that were existing on the internet um, and yeah, I mean, it's an interesting uh, sort of question, like what the definition of like the frame for art within uh, that kind of even is. Yeah, I mean, I thought that Joel's piece really raises that question directly. I yeah. mean, in the, in the essay, I ended up saying like, it's kind of like that New Yorker cartoon on, on the internet, nobody knows you're an artist. Yeah, yeah. Because it kind of is true that, the, that so much of art today <clears throat> is determined by framework, whether it's the gallery setting or the artist reputation or the critical framework. And the internet is just something that has no context. I mean, things without context are that's the norm in the Internet. And so it really po like these two things are converging where the Internet is destroying context for cultural forms, while the art world is doubling down on context as the real creator of meaning and value. Yeah. And so you get things like Joel Homburg, who's really kind of pushing that to its logical conclusion and saying, here's something that on the Internet is literally invisible, you know, and it only becomes visible when I put it in the gallery. And then it raises this just kind of like Zen Cohen kind of question, like, <laughs> is it art if nobody knows it's art? You yeah, know, yeah. like, but I think that that, you know, Joel's piece is so good at pinpointing that problem. And I thought that in Free, a lot of the other works were dancing around a similar issue of like, what does it mean when if context is what gives kind of meaning and value to, let's say, post-conceptual art? Yeah. Uh, what does it mean when those ideas and those uh, things are not limited to the gallery, but ideas are now circulated through the internet and through cell phones. And what is our relationship to information uh, if we if we're not beholden to what the gallery, you know, what's on the wall text, let's say. Yeah. Um, and I think the conceptual art becomes, or the conceptual legacy becomes very different. And this is what Seth's also getting on uh, much earlier. When information starts having a different value, when it starts becoming decontextualized, starts becoming commoditized. I mean. These things are, these are just questions I was interested in. I thought that Lauren's show, I thought the work in the show was really raising those questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of the other piece, I guess, that you, about uh, Guthrie Lonigan, right? Yeah. Which, like, had, um, was that, I don't know if that piece is the triennial, but at, at one point in that essay, you talk about uh, a piece which both existed as, like, a YouTube playlist and then um, <coughs> also as, like, a DVD piece within the yes. context of the museum and that there was, like, kind of a, a heated debate among, like, a, a crew of, I guess, interested observers, like, what... The kind of true piece would be like yeah. or, or whether something was kind of lost by taking it from it, this internet context to existing in this museum space yeah and there's no simple answer for that i yeah. mean and i thought i mean in some ways the answer that ends up being 
you know, the, the the final answer is always, well, the artist says it can, yeah. you know, but somehow to me, that's not a satisfactory answer. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's an easy answer and it's a simple way to solve a, a debate. Like Joel says, let's do it that I'm sorry, Guthrie says, let's do it that way. So it's OK. Yeah. But I think it, the fact that it was debated gets at bigger questions of like, well, you know, what is this thing? I mean, the other thing about Internet art that I think is really becomes more apparent over time is it's event like status. In other yeah. words, the Internet Art that's based on the internet is not permanent. I mean, some of it's still there. You can still go and see uh, My Boyfriend Came Back From The War, which is one of the first pieces of internet art. It's yeah. still live. But the fact is, is that the internet is changing so much that it's like kind of like looking at, uh, it's like looking at a boat in a stream. You know, it's never going to be in the same place. The context is never going to be the same. And so the work can never be the same. And then also the platforms change. Like if you go on to YouTube now, you can still play uh, Guthrie's uh, YouTube, what is it, MySpace intro playlist. Yeah. But of course, the interface around it is all different. Who knows how long the playlist function will remain or, yeah. or if YouTube will decide they'll do something else. So, you know, these things are fragile and they exist in time. And uh, that's, to me, was always interesting because that, that put them, in a sense, for me, a little bit more in the, the camp in an intellectual way with cinema rather than the objects in a gallery. Like objects in a gallery mm -hmm. are artifacts that resist time, ideally, mm -hmm. but you know, uh, film is a time-based medium. And in a sense, I would say that internet art is almost always a performance medium. It's just a long, slow performance sometimes that takes decades and the, the world kind of shifts around it. One of my favorite pieces by Guthrie is totally lost. It's a, it's a piece where he made all these kind of MySpace pages that were just weird hacks of MySpace pages, like trying to push it. Of course, MySpace is gone yeah. in its original form. There's no way to see these places. But if you go to one that was called Ghosts of MySpace, you can find it on archive.org. And it's really cool because it looks like a ruin. It's like half the images are still there, half are gone. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like he, I'm not, I don't know if he planned this or not, but it's, it's too perfect to have a thing called Ghosts of MySpace <laughs> that itself is this kind of ruined page that no longer functions. And it's, uh, yeah, it's quite, uh, it becomes even more meaningful in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, inter it's interesting to think about the comparison between internet art and uh, film, like cinema, <clears throat> like mil 35 millimeter film, in the sense that both are non-archival in the way that you're describing. Be I mean, yeah. in different sort of time spans, like internet art is sort of more gradual in its disintegration like it just like the pages don't load or they you know you have to do more and more upkeep to make sure that the links work and then like film is actually just there's no way to um you can translate it to another medium but yeah the original medium is got a time limit on it yeah yeah i mean uh it's interesting to think yeah. sorry it's just like that you're drawn to these sort of like uh, media mediums that are sort of have a time limit. Well, I would say that all mediums have a time limit. Just some t some mediums, it's very long. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you work in stone, you've yeah. got a very long time limit. But you know, this idea. I mean, I think this is one of the illusions of the art world is by conferring monetary and critical value on works, we imagine that they are valuable. We've yeah. just decided that, you know, uh, and then we imagine they must be preserved forever, just like we have the statues from you know, ancient Greece. But, you know, I would say 98% of the stuff that we're so interested in, I mean, good luck for it to, to be here 200 years from now. I mean, you know, th it's such a folly to imagine that uh, something made from one material is somehow permanent and something made from another material is impermanent. 
um, you know, I think it's just a matter of scale and, and, and pace. Um, some things are very quick, some things are very slow, but they're all, they'll all be gone someday. Um, and that's part of their meaning. I love that. Yeah, those are, I mean, interesting. I was going to ask you, I mean, because even the, uh, the one of the other reviews that just kind of, I mean, I feel like in the Ian Chang uh, piece that you wrote, like you talk about how much work it would be to even like maintain that this kind of you know technological yeah. system over time yeah it's almost like maintaining a garden you yeah know? like how are you this thing i mean i guess th th this jumped into my head when you're making the comparison with 35 millimeter film in a weird way 35 millimeter film because it's mechanical actually i think has a better chance in internet art because with internet art at least if it's based on the web the whole structure around it is determining the speed, the load, all these kinds of factors of it. Yeah. Whereas if you get an old projector and you can fire it up and you have mm -hmm. an old print and it's still in good condition, you can still play it. Like, it's discreet. Yeah, I mean, it's been standardized for a long time and that, that standardization is, is good. The internet is standardized, yes, but it's constantly evolving and changing and those technical standards are, and different kinds of you know aspects of web browsing and so forth are always changing and therefore the artworks can't really you know they're impermanent in that way yeah um but yeah maybe that's a good segue into talking about light industry for, sure. for a bit which um is uh certainly very invested in preserving and, yeah. and showing uh, old film yeah um, and which used to be in sunset park not far from here right? yeah we started in sunset park thomas beard and i started it at industry city which at that time was fairly empty a yeah. lot of the unused space and the owners had this idea that they would invite groups in to do things there, you know, and we didn't have to pay anything. We just went wow. in and got to use the space. It was a gorgeous space. It was technically um, very difficult to work with on very <laughs> le levels. Like one thing was that because of the nature of the space, we couldn't leave anything there oh, wow. over overnight. So every single week we brought everything over, brought it back every night, if you can believe it. Um, it, it was like being a traveling circus or something. We would set it up and take it down. Um, and we also had to invent all these bizarre things to like help with the sound and the light and there's there was no heat on the weekends in the, in the winter which we discovered to our terror for the few shows um you know so on one level it was a beautiful big space it was dramatic architecture like people loved to come visit and just be like whoa like pedro costa came and he's like very dramatic and romantic but he like is he was like smoking a cigarette and looking out at a window over industry cities like it's like we're at the end of the world, you know, and it's just like, so I think there was something about the space that was awesome because it kind of captured the imagination. You had to go to this relatively obscure place that you wouldn't ever go to yeah. at night. It felt scary. Um, you know, that was fun. But on a technical level, it was very difficult. So we eventually... And just we, for people who don't, like, yeah. you give, like, Light Industries, like, mission and, like, sure. a sense or two, yeah. Light Industry, where, you know, we've been around now for 10 years. Yeah. Like, uh, next month is our 10th anniversary. We uh, put on uh, shows on, mostly weekly, uh, one event per week, a single... We do the event a single time, and it's uh, usually some sort of uh, rare film or... Uh, hard to see collection of films often introduced by a special guest curator who could be an artist writer curator so forth film person um, and then each week is a totally different thing yeah. so uh, we've been doing this for 10 years and we see the programming as kind of like a um, almost like an uh, not to use this word too much but almost like an anthology uh, and almost like an anthology of film archives no no I mean we see it website. as a yeah no we, we see it as a kind of statement about the broad you know contours of cinema so we try to show things from all sorts of uh, uh, parts of cinema all sorts of uh, eras of cinema and so yeah. forth um, uh, 
and so we've been doing that uh, yeah now for 10 years and since 2012 we've been in a space a, a common permanent space at in um, uh, Greenpoint where it continues yeah yeah how has like I mean would you say the audience or like interest level in this kind of cinema is like how has that changed over the 10 years uh, it's really significant actually when we first started it felt like there were very few uh, interesting repertory things happening in the city at that moment. Um, obviously, you have anthology, you had MoMA, and we felt at the time, wow, this is a really rich world, actually. Yeah. But I don't think we had anticipated how r much richer it would become because, you know, since we found it, we, there's all these amazing things happening now, like Metrograph and, you know, uh, the, the renewed quad. And uh, when Nellie Killian was at BAM Cinematheque, she really uh, kind of made that program really exciting. And so, like, as we went on, it, it wasn't so much that, you know, this there was a whole new generation of younger programmers that were kind of picking up the torch and doing super interesting things. And we became part of that as well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people from the art world kind of see us from the that perspective and see, oh, wow, here's this group that kind of, you know, uh, cross the border between art and film, which is the, the role we often played. But from the film perspective, I think we were often seen as part of a new generation of many things that were happening and that now, you know, have kind of come into fruition. And now we have this incredibly rich, amazing environment to see films in. There's like nothing else in the world right now, like New York. Yeah. To see a movie, and a repertory what, film. Yeah. And what kind of timeline? I mean, do you imagine that being a project that you could do for 20 more years or for like what? I mean, well, the San Francisco Cinematheque has been around for 60 years, yeah, so yeah. we feel like, like we always think about that. And we're like, well, if they've done it for 60 years, I mean, it feels like I, I feel like film. One thing that's really good about film is if we will know if people aren't interested anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like we'll start having shows and no one shows up. And at that point, we'll say, you know what? Maybe it's time to go. Yeah. I mean, film has a very visible relationship to its audience and a very direct one in a way that again is not the same as the art world the 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 viewers relationship to art and the the, the museum goer gallery goer and their relationship to art and artists is very different from the relationship of film to a, a to a film audience uh ticketing and just the the presence of the people together at the same place and same time it, it changes the dynamic in really really interesting ways um but yeah you'll we'll know <laughs> we'll know when it's time to pack up yeah, yeah.